0: Hey guys and gals, Cable here. This week's podcast brought to you once again by my friends over at iSocial Boost. You know, I uh, I already had my Lone Star Outdoor Show page pretty squared away, but iSocial Boost guys came to me and said, hey, we've got this product that really can help out people looking to make a name for themselves or grow their brand in the outdoor industry. So I said, you know what? We'll start a new page. And before we promote it, I will determine if iSocialBoost really works. Well, let me tell you, (laughs) it passed with flying colors. My new page, A Hunter's Legacy, has over 10,200 followers. I I literally post a couple times a week. Don't do really anything to manage it other than just put interesting content out there. And iSocialBoost does the rest. It it targets people who have the same interest by using hashtags and other people that you want to follow. So like, jim shockey or you use the hashtag deer hunting or big game uh, hunting all those things so you find people who have these like interests and uh, isocialboost does the rest plus you can use my promo code and this is the most important thing uh, lone star use that promo code that's lone star at isocialboost.com and you'll get 80 percent off your first week with no strings attached so use it for a week if you don't see the kind of growth that you want or expect Then cancel, no strings attached. That is literally a $5 investment on yourself. Check it out, isocialboost.com. I'm finding myself now. Good morning, Cable Smith, welcome everybody to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Off Power Polaris. Of course, thanks to you guys and gals for being here, as uh, there's no point in having a show if you're not going to listen. So I appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, that is Nicholas Jamerson. Uh, recently discovered this dude, and the uh, name of that tune is Let It Go For A While. That's a jam right there, I tell you what. Big fan of his stuff. Uh, Man, got a great show planned for you today. But before I give you a rundown on what's in store on today's show, uh, you know what to do, man. Just pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire, pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, the one that Granddaddy passed down, the one that still got mud caked on it, not just from this duck season, but probably if it's like mine, Unless it's been rained on, <laughs> which probably is a good chance of that. But I don't think I've ever washed the the outside of that thing. Uh, so who knows how old that mud is. It's, uh definitely builds character. I don't think you have to wash the inside out that often either. It's much like a good cast iron skillet. Uh, this just builds character, I'll tell you what. Uh, here's what's coming up on today's broadcast. Y'all know that... Well, if anyone's listened to the show frequently over the years, yeah, I'm not one to shy away from the wolf controversy, and I recently came across uh, it was kind of a, it was a flyer actually, and it was basically saying, "Hey, Idaho trappers, we'll give you a thousand dollars per wolf." <laughs> well, obviously, I had to do some research, and it, it turns out that it's more of a reimbursement because trapping wolves in areas as remote as some of Idaho's wilderness is an expensive endeavor. So we've got Justin Webb. He is the founder and the head honcho over at the Foundation for Wildlife Management, but we've got Justin set to jump on here. We'll talk a little bit about that reimbursement program as well as give you some facts on what wolves are really doing out on the landscape because there's so much misinformation, and it's fostered by... You know, National Geographic, Animal Planet, uh, PETA, Humane Society, all all these organizations that want you to think wolves are these warm and fuzzy, cuddly, German shepherd-like animals, which couldn't be farther from the truth. These animals actually kill for fun. Yeah, I know people don't want to hear that. They don't want to admit it, but it's the damn truth. And don't take it from me. Hey, we'll take it from Justin, who's actually been out there and seen it firsthand many times. Uh, so we'll dispel some myths on wolves, discuss their role in the conservation initiative that's that's going on in North America. It's a battle that we are fighting every day. And wolves are right there at the forefront. love them or hate them or indifferent. Uh, they are a major player, perhaps the most revered of all of the uh, the predatory species out there. And so we'll get into some interesting stuff with Justin. Uh, take two or three segments. For sure, no doubt about that. And then our good friend Zach Gates of All Seasons Feeders and Blinds will jump on as there's a new feeder out there that he just recently finished up designing. It'll be available – well, hell, it's available now. Uh, just came out. It's called the Monolith. I've seen pictures. I, I don't have my hands on one yet, but I'm certainly excited about it. I think it's going to revolutionize the feeder game once again. also – What about cottonseed? Is that a viable source of protein for white-tailed deer? What is the protein load in cottonseed compared to protein pellets? We'll discuss that with Zach as well because he's also got a new cottonseed feeder that was just launched last month as well. So cool stuff coming up with Zach and our friends over at All Seasons here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Lots to get into today. Going to be a good one. A couple other things to mention. Uh, don't forget that our February photo of the month contest is going on right now. We've got an all-seasons, uh, what do we got? Yeah, let's give away an all-seasons little squealer hog light. I'm sure Zach would be cool with that. But yeah, we'll give away an all-seasons feeder's little squealer uh, hog eradication tool. It's a light. You attach it to your feeder. runs off of a, a battery Recharges with the solar panel. It's pretty awesome. And uh, we'll give that away to this month's winner. Email your best hunting or fishing photo to lone star Show at gmail.com. We'll get you entered into the February contest. You can also use the hashtag LSOS photo contest right there on Instagram or post it on our Facebook page. Lots of options. Just send it in. Want to see what you got? Uh, also, quick giveaway here this morning. Uh, this. Uh, I hadn't heard about this company. It's called Kick-Ass Beef Jerky. And I think they're, they might be out of, uh, they're from like Michigan or Wisconsin or someplace up there. They just sent me a care package. I've got more beef jerky than I can shake a stick at. I mean, uh, teriyaki, original, smokehouse, black pepper, and I'll give away four bags of beef jerky today. I mean, who doesn't like beef jerky, right? It's the perfect backcountry snack. Actually, it's the perfect anytime snack. And so I'll give away four bags of this uh, kick-ass beef jerky to uh, today's winner. Here's how you enter. Just email the word jerky, that's jerky, to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com, and you could win today's beef jerky prize pack. We'll be right back with Justin Webb of the Foundation for Wildlife Management right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Howdy, folks. I'm Lee Hoffbear for Bears Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Bears once again, the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there, Cable here for TX Duck Blinds, highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at TexasDuckBlinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. Took my first breath Where the muddy grasses Spills into the Gulf Of Mexico
1: the skyline's colored by Chemical plants To put bread on
0: the table of the working man. Where the working man does his best to provide safety and shelter for kids and a while. Giving a little love of a soul every day,
1: making all the time to keep the wolves away.
0: One of my favorites there from Uncle Lucius, Keep the Wolves Away, which I find highly appropriate considering our next. Topic of discussion, I'm Cable Smith by the way, you're tuned in to the Lone Star Outdoors Show powered by Dallas Safari Club, shout out to our presenting sponsors Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris and uh, shout out to you guys and gals, thanks for being here, it is a pleasure to be talking all things outdoors with you, Um, like I said, we're about to talk some wolves specifically, Uh, what if there was a bounty system in place, what if people thought there was? Uh, There's something similar. It's not quite a bounty, uh, but for all those trappers out there who are working their tails off in the conservation effort, hey, there's a little incentive for you guys, and we're going to get into how one organization is reimbursing those efforts coming up here in just a second. But first, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by First Light. You know, if I was uh, running a trap line, which I'm not, Uh, But if I was, if I had wolves to trap, you know damn good and well that I'd be setting those snares in my sanctuary bibs and sanctuary jacket. When temperatures are unbearably cold, and and trust me, uh, I spent a week doing this exact thing in British Columbia, and it was the sanctuary set that kept me high and dry. They're also water resistant, so all that snow that's accumulating on the outside of your boot, that's not coming in, it's not getting your sock wet. Uh, It's basically like walking around in... A sleeping bag. Like, as far as the warmth is concerned. uh, But, of course, not so big and goofy. Not so cumbersome. You can still move in it easily. Uh, It's the Sanctuary set. Bib and jacket. And you can find it at FirstLight.com. FirstLight, go further. Stay longer. Well, moving right along here, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. He joins us from the great state of Idaho. He is a passionate, lifelong hunter, uh, a trapper, outfitter, and also the Executive Director of the Foundation for Wildlife Management. It's my pleasure to welcome Justin Webb to the program.
2: Thanks for having me. My pleasure. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself as far as where you live and uh, what you like to pursue in the great outdoors. Well, uh,
3: my name is Justin Webb. I'm the Executive Director for the Foundation for Wildlife Management. I uh, try to involve myself in as much uh, wildlife conservation work as I can. I've volunteered in the past for the Mueller Foundation, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I um, actually founded a, a local nonprofit, uh, the Idaho Big Game Foundation. I work as a hunting guide, spent most of my life in the woods, and, and uh, very passionate about the outdoors and, and uh, hunting, fishing, um, different sporting activities. Uh, I live in, in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho. Um, <clears throat> it's only about, uh, oh, I don't know, 60 miles from Canada. Uh, in the far northern panhandle of Idaho. Uh Um, Very active in the outdoors and just uh, passionate about uh, wildlife conservation and uh, maintaining a a healthy balance in our ecosystem and and, uh, helping preserve uh, hunting, fishing, uh, sporting way of life. So what is your favorite thing to hunt? Um, I'd have to say probably elk. has been my largest passion until uh, the conflicts with wolves came along. Since then, I've, I've found wolves are uh, by far the most difficult animal I've ever pursued. They're by by far the, the smartest mm-hmm. um, and, and most difficult to harvest. And that's kind of taken a, a bit of a, a uh, <clears throat> I don't know, bite out of my, my own passions for elk hunting and, and captured my interest a great deal. Uh, they're just an extremely difficult animal. And, and the challenge, I think,
2: uh, suits my personality a little bit to some mm-hmm. degree. Well, and, and I'll tell you this, um, I've I wanted a wolf for a long time. And I think wolves are amazing animals. I don't hate them, but much like you, I think they need to be managed. And so I was, you know, for a couple of years, pricing wolf hunts, uh, even, you know, even in Idaho, and then versus like trap line trips, which, you know, we kind of talked about off the air. And the success rate on the, the trap line trip I ended up going on was like 80% compared to, you know, 30 to 40% chance of even seeing a wolf on some of the hunts. So I went the trap line route. Not only are you passionate about hunting, I think that you're very involved with the trapping scene as well, at least supporting uh, those folks who do trap.
4: Yeah,
3: absolutely. That's one of the things that we came to realize uh, shortly after wolves were delisted here in Idaho is, was that uh, trapping is by far the most productive method of managing wolf populations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not personally what I would call a trapper. I, I have spent the last seven years, however, uh, passionately targeting wolves um, through through the method of trapping, uh, well, then and, you're a trapper. <laughs> uh,
4: that's that's a,
3: a lot of people uh, accuse me of that, sure, I, and uh, I, I would wear that badge proudly. Um, well, trapping, it. Gets a, uh, trapping really gets a bad rap nationwide, and I, I, I do a lot um, just in effort to educate people. Folks don't realize that the traps that we use in today's day and age, it's the exact same trap that the biologists used to catch these wolves and bring them here in the first place. They're not designed to to rip animals' legs off. They're not designed to injure the, the wildlife that we're trapping. Um, it uh, I oftentimes will stick my hand in my wolf traps just so that people can realize the fact that, it's. Uh, yes, it shocks you. Yes, it makes you jump, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't break the skin. It doesn't bruise you horribly badly. It's not going to break your arm. Um, there's just so many misconceptions about trapping in today's world. And, and folks hear the, the term trapping and they instantly think of a grizzly bear trap jumping up and, and uh, you know, biting somebody's leg off or something. It's, uh, it's amazing the stories that I hear from time to time from folks who uh, just aren't familiar with what trapping actually is. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, I um, I have trapped 18 wolves uh, in, in the past few years. And um I'm I'm uh it's been a learning uh experience for me for sure. Wolves are by far the greatest adversary I've ever had, they're the smartest animal I've ever pursued. Uh I have more respect for wolves I think than just about any other uh animal that we have here in Idaho. And uh a lot of that is has, has just simply come from trying to learn about them and trying to find ways to manage their numbers.
2: Well, they truly are the apex predator. They are so good at what they do. And I think it has a lot to do with the pack hierarchy. And, th- therefore, they're <laughs> they're pretty damn good at killing, uh, which I don't hate them for. That's what wolves do. Uh, but they need to be managed like we're saying here. And I guess all of this is why uh, – well, here's how I became aware of the Foundation Fly Life Management. It was through this flyer. It was posted on – I saw it on, I think, Facebook or something. And it, it basically offered up what I thought was a bounty of like $1,000 up to $1,000 for a wolf. Um, since our off-the-air conversation, you actually uh, told me that that is more of a reimbursement for the expense that trappers um, experience in just maintaining their trap line.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, That's a large misconception, uh, specifically from that particular ad that did go viral on social media recently. Um, it, it was actually an incomplete ad that uh, I still had some work to do and it uh, slipped out there on social media and got away from me and and uh, traveled around the world. Actually, I'm getting calls from New Zealand and Africa and all over the place now <laughs> at this point. But uh, just uh, kind of goes to show the power of social media, uh, both positive and negative, if a guy's not, not watching what's going on there. But, uh, yeah, absolutely, it is not a bounty. It is a reimbursement of a sportsman's expenses. Um, and, and the whole goal there is to try to make it cost-effective, for a sportsman to continue helping with the efforts in managing wolf populations. Um, we, we found out right away when we got our trapping uh, seasons here in Idaho, um, we thought that we would go out and we'd trap a lot of wolves and we would help our, our elk populations and we would help with you know all of these moose that we're finding that have the hamstrings chewed off and they're left uh, suffering and, uh, and are never fed upon by the wolves after that. We thought that we would be able to eliminate all that by trapping these wolves. And we uh, spent a ton of money and, and we didn't catch anything.
4: Hmm. And so
3: we pursued uh, some some um, education on trapping wolves, hoping to get help from the local trappers that we knew. And come to find out, they, they all told us that they could not and would not trap wolves because it would cost too much to do so. And uh, we learned that really quickly. It was not uncommon the first year or two for us to spend twenty five hundred dollars uh and never catch a wolf um wow it's uh so the the idea of the reimbursement is is simply to try to incentivize the efforts of those who are willing to stay out after they're done deer deer hunting and elk hunting and actually pursue wolves our Our wolves have expanded at such uh great rates from one year to the next that we can't keep up. Yeah. Um they you know they, they say that the average pack size in the state of Idaho right now is six to seven wolves, each of those packs having a minimum of one litter of six to seven pups, some packs having multiple litters. Not to say that they have multiple litters a year but the whole concept that alpha male and female are the only ones that breed is completely false, and that's been proven time and time again.
2: Uh-huh. So
3: we have this huge expansion of wolf
2: population. Well, hell, you yeah. see them popping up in places like Oregon, Washington State, California, um, and there's other states in the West that now have wolf packs, not just like, hey, here was a wolf. It was, I don't know, it's like you know, viable packs in those places. And so you know that they're expanding, Uh, And obviously you guys can't keep up with that expansion there in Idaho
0: either.
3: That's really what's happened. I I mean, you you can't remain at an average pack size of six to seven wolves and have six to seven pups born each year for each pack and still remain at six to seven wolves in your pack. All of those wolves are either being killed by other wolves in, in opposing packs uh, in territorial disputes, or they're dispersing. And, and you're exactly right. That's the reason why we now have wolves all the way across Washington and Oregon and down through through California and even into Colorado. Um, they, the wolves travel far greater distances than what most people realize and uh the 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 cost getting back on topic I guess not to to get off on a tangent there, but the cost that's involved in in running a trap line, which is by far the most productive method of managing a wolf population, is astounding i, I personally have invested over sixteen hundred dollars in fuel alone for every one of the eighteen wolves that I've caught Wow um, and the the reason for that is because uh a a wolf pack um territory is uh So vast and and large that in order to get yourself set up on multiple packs, you have to travel great distances. So as an example, I I have approximately a 75-mile loop that I run, which puts me in two, sometimes three packs of wolves. And um, if the wolves from each pack are only coming through every three to five weeks, uh, that means that every couple of weeks... Uh, I have a chance of wolves coming close enough to my gear for me to have the potential for making a catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legalities in the state of Idaho: you must uh, check your traps every seventy-two hours, and so uh, the, the fuel expense involved with that uh, is is fairly astounding. So the reimbursement um, is exactly that: it is not a bounty; it is not not uh, a bounty paid by the state. It is uh, it is a a reimbursement of your expenses funded from membership dollars, sponsorships, and our fundraising banquets through our nonprofit organization, the Foundation for Wildlife Management, for for your expenses uh, that are accrued while uh, targeting wolves. The process of it goes something like this: You sign up as a uh, as a member for $35. When you harvest a wolf, you send us a copy of your fishing game check-in slip, which proves that it, for one that it was a legal harvest. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, it proves what region that the wolf came from. Um, and then you also send us a copy of your expense receipts up to the max allowed for that region that the wolf was harvested in. When we receive those, we process it, verify all your expenses, verify your fishing game check-in slip, verify the region, and then we send you a reimbursement check for what you've already spent out of pocket. Um, the uh,
2: Is there is there a financial backing here from the ranching uh, community?
3: So we, we have just recently um, began building a relationship, a working relationship with the Idaho Cattlemen Association. Um, we also are, are supported by the Idaho Farm Bureau. Uh, we have had some sponsorships for, for banquets at, at different times uh, from various different organizations. Um, we uh, the, the majority of our funding, however, comes from membership dollars and from our fundraising banquets.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, so I guess going back in time, it was the foundation for wildlife management founded solely uh for this this um effort of, of reimbursing you know trappers who are targeting wolves
3: that's exactly what the the foundation of of well no
2: i what year was it founded out of curiosity
3: So the group organized in 2011, and we began reimbursing. We got our 501c3 status, and we began reimbursing wolf harvest expenses in 2012. Um, And it's just kind of grown and expanded from there. With the wolf issue being so confrontational, especially back then when they were first delisted, Uh, We were fairly quiet about what we were doing. We we aren't interested in conflict. uh, We we work really hard to help people understand that we we are not an anti-wolf group. We simply believe that wolves must be managed the same way as the rest of our wildlife is. Um, You know, we we spent the last 130 years using the North American model of wildlife conservation to maximize all of our populations uh, of, of all wildlife for both recreational viewing um uh, consumptive uses, uh and various other um uh, reasons. And it's it's unfortunate that without management of wolves, uh, there's a very serious risk of, of a lot of the dynamics of all of the wildlife that we've built over the last hundred and thirty years going away. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of things that are changing in our wildlife populations. There's Our, our moose numbers uh, here, specifically in northern Idaho, have, have plummeted since the wolves have, have come on the scene. And granted, that's not 100% wolves uh, that have caused that. Uh, I think that, that uh, moose numbers are declining across the country,
2: mm-hmm. but it certainly
3: plays a part in it.
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so how many wolves currently do they estimate exist in Idaho? The the last
3: legitimate count, I believe there were 786 wolves that they had documented. And the term documented is an important part of that. Uh, One of the things that I I really feel for for our game departments is that they're catching flack from both sides. If they say there's 786 wolves in the state of Idaho, the sportsmen say, are you kidding me? There's wolves in every drainage, and and there's no possible way that there's not at least three times that number. Mm -hmm. And they're correct, in my opinion. From the flip side of that, the, these, the organizations, uh, these groups who do not believe wolves should be managed in any way, shape, or form, the majority of those have zero knowledge of wolves or what they're about or or what they do or what's even happened in the areas where wolves exist, but they say, wait a minute, you're claiming 786 wolves. Show us the exact documentation that you have that proves that you have that many wolves. Well, that's a very difficult task, trying to document wolves. These these wolves don't live in, in flat country where it's easy to, to document them. In, in our neck of the woods in northern Idaho, it's so extremely heavily timbered and steep country that uh, even on our hunt as a guide, you seldom get a shot that's more than 50 to 60 yards because you can't see farther than that. Mm. Um, being able to do flyover counts for our wildlife here is extremely difficult. Uh, you you just can't see below the, the canopy of the timber. So in order to document a, a wolf, um, the biologists are forced to go out in the country, uh, trap a wolf, put a collar on it, release that wolf, try to track it to its den sites, uh, try to get a count on pups, try to verify the number of wolves in the pack. It's an extremely difficult, extremely... Expensive. Uh, Expensive endeavor, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and our game department, unfortunately, does not have the expenses um, to continue doing uh, a, a lot of that work, um, especially given the fact that we already have more than six or eight times the number of wolves that we're supposed to manage for documented in our state. Yeah. So uh, two years ago, yeah. to get back to your question there, you asked how many wolves that we have in Idaho. In my opinion, there's no possible way that we don't have at least twenty five hundred to three thousand wolves in the state uh, that's gracious. my that's my own personal opinion uh, derived from uh constant reports that i get about wolves uh constant feedback that i get from our our hunters and uh, trapping community um, however the state uh, the last count that they had done it was just just under 800 wolves that they have documentation for
0: wow okay so that's just what they've documented which as you described is a very difficult process um Let's do this, Justin. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and, and take a historical look back at what was actually promised, the, the states of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana when Wolf reintroduction came to the forefront uh, compared to what actually happened and why we are where we're at today. Sound good? Absolutely. Excellent. And that segment was brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. Uh, I don't think you can hunt wolves with a thermal optic in Idaho, but you probably should be able to. Maybe someday in the near future. Anyway, if you can, or hey, if you just want to shoot some coyotes or feral hogs in Texas, check out the new Pulsar Thermion. It fits any 30 millimeter rings, uh, so you take your normal rifle scope off, put the Thermion on, boom. You're ready to roll. It's the Thermian, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from Justin Webb of the Foundation for Wildlife Management. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
1: We just laugh at who they
4: are. Cause the wall's been broken, the chains ain't holdin'
0: Visit Bobcat of Dallas.com or call 469-586-000.
1: I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9000. Go Hunt, or visit our website at www.biggame.org. when the wolves
4: are hungry, the wolves are in, as the seas were.
0: Wolves, that is, American Aquarium, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show, one of my favorite bands there. Cable Smith, by the way, riding shotgun with you. Thanks for tuning in today. I do appreciate each and every one of you for sharing a part of your week with me as we are talking wolves with Justin Webb of the Foundation for Wildlife Management. But before we get back into it with Justin, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader. In Big Game Conservation, I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of like-minded folks who are passionate about hunter's rights, education, and, of course, conservation. For more information, check us out at biggame.org. All right. Well, Justin, thanks for sticking around through the break. Um, let's take a look at the, the history of Wolf Reintroduction and why there is so much bad blood and, and mistrust between the states and the feds, or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And it might not all be their fault. You know, they definitely need to shoulder a lot of the blame. But back in the mid-'90s, it was Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. Each state agreed to have 10 breeding pairs and manage for 100 wolves. Then the feds would turn over control of those wolf populations to the states. Well, obviously – it didn't take long at all for Idaho to reach those population goals uh, and then that's when all hell broke loose. The feds reneged on on their part of the bargain and I think it wasn't until 2011 before Idaho got some level of control over their own wolf population.
3: Correct. That that is correct. Which so is
0: asinine.
3: There's a few different aspects to to uh, statements that you just made.
4: So, um,
2: I understand they legally, you know, they got sued from every anti-hunting organization, pro-wolf organization, but still, they promised something, and they didn't deliver.
3: That that would be correct from my uh, personal opinion. One of the things that I do know, um, I know that, that uh, the state agreed to manage for, well, excuse me, they were mandated to manage for 100 wolves uh, total, and... Uh, Maybe
2: it was 10 breeding pairs, 100 wolves. And,
3: and 10 breeding pairs, yeah. correct. And the state of Idaho agreed to... Uh, manage for 15 breeding pairs just to ensure that we would never uh, approach um, a a, a minimum population that would cause re-enlistment and for the state to lose control of their wolf populations. They were trying to go above and beyond what was requested of them in order to ensure the vitality of our wolf populations. And again, none of our organizations that I'm affiliated with are Mm anti-wolf. We just simply believe in management and it's vital to all of our wildlife so, uh, the state of Idaho agreed to manage for 15 breeding pair, and yes, the, those numbers were met. I believe, clear back in prior to 2005. Yeah.
4: Um,
3: unfortunately, through a series of different, um, I'm not real sure I, I can't call it a mistake, but but uh, um, backdoor way of using the uh, Endangered Species Act um, and, and a few other aspects. There are groups who do not believe the wolf should be managed in any way who have uh, used those uh, the verbiage that's in the, the ESA to sue um, the different states for a variety of different things. What a lot of people need to understand about those lawsuits is this. When those groups file a lawsuit and that lawsuit is deemed viable by the court, taxpayers then fund all of their fees for their lawsuit.
4: Which means,
3: in turn, not only are you and I paying them to sue us, but that also means that all of the funding that it garnered from all around the world by advertising these real emotional false uh, statements and and, uh, little videos that they make to to garner uh, support from people who know nothing about the topic, all of the money that's sent to them goes in their pocket. So, because of that, it's become a business, suing the states. Uh, over wildlife has become a business, and those people are getting rich doing so. So um, you start looking. Oh yeah,
2: they never rich. contribute I mean, in, in any of these organizations. HSUS, PETA. I mean, we. It's well known that they don't contribute as much as a wooden nickel to conservation. Uh, all of it goes back into their, you know, their employees' pockets.
3: And they and they have already stated that, you know, from from one lawsuit to the next, be, before one lawsuit ends, they already have another one uh, filed or or re- sitting ready to go. They've got a lot of backing from people who don't understand the issue financially, and uh, and they've they've made statements after the length lawsuit that we went through. Um, they had actually made statements and, and provided a list of lawsuits that they have lined up to come next. For the it's, links. Uh, um not just about the links. I mean they,
2: they can But we just you in. guys just are actually the links just was taken off of the uh endangered species list.
3: Correct. Yeah. Um, so
2: can are you targeting it? I am just curious. We I caught uh I didn't, you know, on that trap line which was one of the most educational weeks of my entire life. Um but we did catch three links and it was awesome. <laughs>
3: Sure. Yeah, they're they're amazing animals and, and we do have very few links here. Um but fortunately, uh the biologists involved uh, realized that Idaho does not offer much for for um, suitable habitat for links and because of that, links will never have a stakehold in our state.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, they they just uh, there's a few that wander through here and there. The only reason that they even knew that we had any links come through here is because the trapping community caught links uh, did the right thing, called the Fish and Game Department. We were able to put collars on lynx at that point in time. They were released completely unharmed, and uh, and that was the only information that was available on the lynx population mm. um, or that there were even lynx here. Uh, unfortunately, those groups used trapping as a way to try to eliminate uh, wolf trapping and wolf harvest.
4: Um,
3: they said that, that we were not, that the state was not doing a good enough job of protecting our lynx population Uh, from traps and they asked for all of these limitations on traps specifically the flip side of that was none of the limitations that they asked for had anything to do with eliminating lynx catch a lynx would still be caught in every trap that they uh, had requested to alter what those alterations they requested did do however was eliminate wolf trapping and uh it um, thankfully um it, it all panned out in our favor. But, I mean, there's, there's, they're going to find another excuse, whether it's the grizzly bear or, uh, you know, the lynx was was the most recent one. We have an uh, abundant fisher population that doesn't have enough documentation for us to necessarily have a season yet. We're working on that. But I'd imagine the fishers on their list, the wolverines on their list, um, golden eagles. I mean, there's all these different things that they can use uh, against sportsmen, um, and I, I really wish that uh, steps would be taken to rewrite the Endangered Species Act to to uh, eliminate that conflict that we're that we're facing on a regular basis. But for now, it's a it's a part of life and a, and a part of the program. And
2: if it's want. pathetic is what it is. It, it, suing state fish and wildlife agencies and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has become a business, and that people are getting rich off of suing going through the litigation process, and then suing again and again and again. With our dollars, uh, it's completely, uh, it's absurd. And like you said, something needs to change, whether, you know, if it's that, if it's the Endangered Species Act being rewritten. Um, we need to be protected so that these <laughs> frauds, is what they really are, is just frauds, uh, no longer have that ability. Let me ask you this, because kind of off the record, uh, the Idaho uh, Fish and Game Department told me that they used aerial gunning to help reduce wolf numbers. I don't know if they still do that or 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 if you are aware that they did that, but is Idaho actually the state managing wolf populations?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The state of Idaho um goes to great lengths to manage wolf populations d- despite the the uh you know, outbursts and, and a tremendous amount of conflict that's created by them trying their best to, to do what they can to manage your wolf populations, um, that they, they continue to do so when it's absolutely needed. I can tell you that uh, this last year uh, was the highest number of wolf predation on livestock ever recorded in the state of Idaho. And and yeah, there certainly are areas where um, our elk numbers have been completely wiped out and, and the state has, has employed uh, all tools necessary to uh, try to make a difference in those zones. Unfortunately, as I mentioned before, much of Idaho is so heavily timbered, uh, projects like aerial gunning has is, is become extremely difficult,
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, and, and it's not necessarily effective, which mm-hmm. is where the importance of our program and, and trying to make it cost-efficient to keep our sportsmen out there targeting wolves uh, has, has become important. Because there's a lot of areas where where uh, the state's hands are, are somewhat tied. There's only so much that they can do um, without employing uh, full-time trappers to to try to target wolves. And unfortunately, um, it, it's not come to that yet. Um, but uh, people need to understand that that uh, wolf harvest is not an easy endeavor. It's not an easy task. There's a reason that uh, our, our forefathers um, finally. Went to poison of wolves, of which I, I will state publicly I am 100% opposed to ever doing. I hope we never have to go back there again. But I hope that people do understand. Back then, they had full-time employees that worked both for the state and for the government that did nothing but target wolves hunting, trapping, all all means necessary. We we had the majority of the public who were uh acting based on fear, not out of knowledge of, of wolf populations, but based on fear, who who hated wolves and, and uh did everything in their power to try to, to kill off whatever wolves that they came across or whatever wolves they could find. And mm-hmm. still with all of that activity and fully funded uh full time um employees in our federal government and in our state agencies They could not keep the wolf populations in check. They could not keep uh, wolf populations from expanding and and causing damage. That's the reason that they went to poison, Mm
4: -hmm. because
3: they they didn't find a way to get it done. Our hope is that through uh, a financial reimbursement program, making it feasible for the sportsmen who want to get out and help manage wolf populations, that we can get that done and at least... Uh, create some kind of an even keel. Wolf populations expand at forty percent annually uh, if they're if they're not kept in check. Washington's wolf population is expanding at over thirty percent annually right now, mm-hmm. a- and I would I would uh, venture to bet that that uh, Oregon is no different.
2: Um, it, God help those people up there in the Pacific Northwest because we all know that. I mean, I'm going to call a spade a spade and not apologize for it. There's a lot of great outdoorsmen in those states, but especially Oregon. I mean, a bunch of tree huggers, um, you know, they're going to be the first ones to be up in arms about, oh, we got to protect our wolves. You know, well, yeah, okay. Uh, what about your elk herd? What are you going to do to protect it?
3: They they definitely are up against some political battles that I I don't uh, wish on on anyone. It, it's it's a. I mean,
2: you guys had it bad for twenty years. <laughs> There's oh man, the fight that the outdoorsmen in Oregon are going to be facing is uh, I'm not envious of that at all. No, me
3: neither. It's one of the things that I, I do have a full understanding of. Those folks are up against something that we started going up against. A long time ago, except theirs is on a much broader scale and and i you know I get a lot of phone calls from people from Seattle and Los Angeles and new york and and uh all over the country from folks who really legitimately do not understand wolves and they don't understand what's going on and so they call me and they insult me and they make death threats and they threaten my family and all of these different things and it's you know as a man it's difficult to swallow some of that sometimes, but
0: but unfortunately, we do have to take a quick break. Justin, uh, we will come back and dispel many of the common myths that even quite a few hunters still believe today when it comes to wolves. Specifically, do they ever kill for fun? We'll tackle that and a whole lot more next. Uh, that segment brought to you by Lone Star Egg Credit, by the way. We'll be right back with more on the Lone Star Outdoors show.
4: In the Kate
0: Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.GoldenTriangleWhitetail.com today. Pictures don't grow up. Pictures never change. They're frozen there forever in the months. they will made. They don't fall out of love They don't change their minds They won't ever get sick And leave hearts behind Love that one there from our old friend they Josh Greider, Pictures Do That one will tug at the heartstrings that there I'm Cable true. Smith, by the way, thank you That's Thank you, thank you for being here today We are still visiting with our friend Justin Webb He is the executive director and founder of the Foundation for Wildlife Management. And we are about to dispel some common myths when it comes to wolves and their behavior. Uh, But before we do that, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by John X Safaris. You know, this will be my third year in a row to head to South Africa's Eastern Cape with John X it is taking place, the uh, Lone Star Outdoors show trip with John X is taking place June 7th through the 15th if you want to come hunt. plains game, if you want to hunt, you know, if you want to get into the big five, John X can make that happen, and I'd love for you to be a part of that trip. We've got five hunters signed up already. We can take seven total. I make eight, uh, so there's still two spots left. If you want to come, shoot me an email, Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. And I'll send you over all the information uh, to see if uh, this might be the beginning of your Africa obsession like it's been mine. Well, let's go ahead and pick it back up here with Justin. You know, where we left off, um, I think you were about to get into some of the things that you believed to be true concerning wolves prior to them being uh, reintroduced into your home state of Idaho back in the mid-90s.
3: Prior to us having wolves in our backyard, I believed that a wolf was everything that I was taught by National Geographic. I believed that only uh, the alpha male and female breed. I believed that uh, they only kill the sick and the weak. I believed that they were good for the environment because they they kept disease from, from sprouting up in our ungulate populations. I believed all of these different things, and those folks are no different. They believe all of that stuff wholeheartedly because they have not seen what we have seen and so I try really hard to keep that in mind when people are calling me and bashing me and putting us down and insulting us and threatening us and things because they're people too. They came to their conclusions based on what they know to be truth. Mm-hmm. It's just unfortunate that what they know to be truth is completely false. Yeah. And unless you've been around wolves, unless you've ridden a snowmobile up the bottom of Lightning Creek out of Clark Fork, Idaho, and seen a half a dozen moose with their hamstrings chewed off, clear to their bunghole, left there bleeding out, suffering, and and never to be fed upon, and unless you've witnessed that for yourself, it's really difficult to understand that that those claims about wolves are false. They're a wild dog. It's no different than putting a a house lab in the middle of a a feedlot full of cattle. If they've never been around livestock before... As soon as the livestock starts to move, their first instinct is to chase it. Wolves are no different. When they come across an ungulate, it takes off running. They chase it down and chew on it. When it stops running, they weren't chasing it because they were hungry. They were chasing it because it moved. They were chasing it because it ran. It's not their fault. I don't hate wolves. I have a huge amount of respect for wolves. But it's vital that people understand that that's what's happening out there they're not cleaning up the ecosystem, they're not saving Yellowstone National Park. They're not you know, all those things. I, you oh know, but
2: I, hey, I hey, no, Justin, the beavers are coming back and the park is just so much more viable than it's ever been and I mean we've all like, that is one of the most ridiculous videos. People, even hunters have sent me that saying, "Oh, wolves are great." Oh, BS, come on, man. And it the majority of hunters out there still believe like you said that wolves only kill the sick and the weak and it's just I'll put it like this, um when I was a kid, we had a chicken coop, and a pair of just uh, stray pit bulls got in there. They killed, like, all 20 chickens we had in there, and they didn't eat a one of them, you know? They just did it just because that's what they do. Uh, it's it
3: sounds, instinct. It's an instinctive reaction.
2: Yeah, and while I haven't seen these uh, animals being hamstrung and uh, personally, I know that it does happen, and you see uh, examples where wolves go into a drainage and, and kill all 20 elk that were in there and don't eat any of them. So, see, so, yeah, I don't know if they're teaching the young, or if it's just like you said, just uh, you know, uh, their inherent nature of chasing and then maiming. Uh, but it is odd that they don't at least, you know, feed on the on the on their victims.
3: And, and you know, it's not always that they don't either. I mean, wolves must consume an average of twenty big game animals per year just for their own survival. So mm-hmm. I mean, they they have to have a huge calorie intake for the energy output. Those wolves travel so far so quickly, they must keep their body weight uh, proportionate to, to their energy output. So, I mean, they definitely do feed on a lot of things. When they do decide to eat something, it is amazing how spotless clean a carcass will be. They they will eat every speck of flesh, including a lot of the bones on an animal when they decide they're going to feed on it. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, however, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, People just don't understand it. I actually heard you make a statement earlier in the conversation that uh, kind of made me giggle a little bit. You you said something about uh, the dynamics of of wolves hunting in packs and how efficient they are uh, killing that way. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand. A single adult wolf can easily take down a a mature six-point bull elk by themselves with with no problem. It's not something where uh, it takes the entire pack. to to take an animal down. In fact, when they hunt, uh, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, I saw one wolf came through this drainage, you know, Johnson Creek or whatever it happens to be. And what they don't realize is that those wolves are spread out a mile or two miles apart when they hunt across a drainage like that. And so the whole pack may have come through the drainage. It's just that you just happen to catch the one wolf track that came through the area where you happen to be. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily travel in large groups at, at, at on a regular basis while they're hunting.
2: I would they're say that, very, that their stamina much. is unmatched. I mean, there's, there's nothing else like it in North America, and no. they, they, they are opportunistic. What is in front of them is what they're going to kill. Uh, that's, that's just the way it is.
3: I, I would agree with that statement. 100. So, percent
2: Um. I mean, I've seen so I've done uh, quite a bit of mountain lion hunting with hounds in Colorado, and you look at the the range on some of those hounds. Uh, like you look at their, you take their collar off at the end of the day, and you look at your handheld GPS there. And I think the most I ever saw was like 28 miles one of the dogs ran. I guarantee you, a wolf could do the same thing if it wanted to, probably even go further. Oh,
3: it's- it's amazing. We've, we've, I've actually uh, been blessed to, to uh, have some interactions with our state biologists and also with our state trappers. And they, they get this collar data from from uh, trapping wolves and putting collars on them and trying to better understand their movements. And it's amazing. They you know There's one wolf that they had uh, caught down near Fairfield, Idaho, that um, all of a sudden one day just decided to take off and it got hit by a car in Butte, Montana on the freeway. Um, there's, uh, there's wolves that have been collared that have traveled clear to Colorado and back. Um, people, you know, that I think that that's a, a huge misunderstanding when they think about the dynamics of wolf populations. They don't understand how far they travel. That's one of the explanations that was given to me by some guys who are um, who have trapped wolves their whole lives. I was asking the question about their opinion of, is this the right wolf? Do we have the right wolf that was originally here? And and that's still uh, up-in-the-air topic.
2: There's a lot of um, speculation on uh, them. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which you're referencing, originally reintroducing the Canadian gray wolf which they say is like you know 20 pounds larger It's built for chasing caribou, uh, so I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that's probably where you're going with that.
3: Well, there's a lot of different dynamics that play into that. That that's where I was headed with that. Some of the some of the uh, guys that I know that have studied wolves most of their lives, they say a wolf is a wolf is a wolf, and the reason is the reason they believe that is because wolves travel so far so quickly that it's extremely difficult for uh, any subspecies of wolf. To, to become established without cross and interbreeding with other uh, wolves, hmm. so you know that their their opinion is that it's extremely difficult for a subspecies to actually form that being said we do we do have wolves you know in in the southern portion of the u s uh, red wolves as an example it's recently been proven that a red wolf is uh, crossbred with a coyote. Yeah. Um, it, it's not even a, a real wolf but the wolves that they have back east we have I mean, there's a gentleman that uh, I'm friends with from Wisconsin who traps wolves back there or excuse me traps coyotes back there and they have to release wolves on a regular basis and uh, he came out here to to, to help guide uh, for Clark Fork Outfitters with me um, and uh, we were having some conversations about uh, releasing wolves or releasing animals out of, out of traps and, and uh, trapping in general and we started showing each other pictures, and the wolves that he is trapping are drastically different than the wolves that I'm trapping. They they look like a coyote. They're shaped like a coyote. They're much smaller than the wolves that I'm trapping, mm-hmm. and I can't help but wonder how the you know the subspecies or or whether that's um, you know crossbreeding with coyotes or whatever has has taken place there has has made a difference.
2: But it, well, so, how big up. is the average wolf as far as uh, in pounds? I think the female that I was able to harvest in uh british columbia weighed ninety five pounds which they said was a pretty good size for a female
0: there
3: and and that's uh really really common people. I, I get a lot of phone calls from folks who swear that they've caught a 150- or 200-pound wolf, and, and I, I don't ever call anybody a liar, but I'll, I'll tell you that um, it's rare.
2: That's okay. I uh, shot a 500-pound feral hog last week, so it's kind of <laughs> the same deal. <laughs> I, yeah,
3: I, I completely understand. So um, I, I, I have weighed the majority of uh, of the wolves that I've caught. Um, the average adult wolf in Idaho is going to run around 110 pounds. The average female in Idaho is probably 90 to 100 pounds. Okay. Um, I I have caught wolves up to 118 pounds. I've seen seen wolves that that went uh, over 130 pounds, and and I will tell you, uh, looking at that 130 pound wolf, I would have I would have put a large sum of money. Uh, on on a bet that would state that that wolf would have gone over two hundred pounds by looking at it on the ground. They're mm-hmm. they're just um, their body structure is much different than what one thinks. They're super long legged. They're extremely tall. They uh, have extremely long fur, um, but they burn off most of the calories that they that they take in. They mm-hmm. don't weigh near what most folks think.
2: And it's like that with mountain lions too. You know, there there are probably a few two hundred pound big tom cats out there, but you know, if you catch a 180-pound cougar, I mean that's a freaking beast. But I think people, have yeah, sure. you know, a <laughs> misconception that oh, there's 230-pound, 250-pound mountain lions just run around like uh, you know, it's nothing. And uh, these uh, a lot of these animals are generally a lot smaller than than people realize. Not that 110 pounds isn't. I mean, it is a, a death machine. Um, let's be clear about that. They are uh, so good at what they do, which is why ultimately we're having this conversation. Uh, You guys have plans to expand this program into other states. I think Montana is first up on the list.
3: Yeah, so we have, uh, the past few years, we've been working towards trying to expand into the state of Montana. Uh, I think long term, uh, the Foundation for Wildlife Management is a program that could be made use of for um, wolf management or or any predator management um, in, in just about any state that has legal wolf harvest uh folks as as they uh, have wolf populations expanding they're going to come to realize that it's extremely difficult to manage them uh Sportsmen struggle to get it done because of the cost and and uh the foundation has a lot to offer in that respect mm-hmm. um, we We did come up against some legislative uh wording verbiage that uh um, was ruled by montana f w p um, to state that what we do uh, would not be viewed as being legal within the state because there's there's a, I don't want to quote the law, it's something along the lines of the fact that uh, nothing of value can be given in accordance to the harvest of a big game animal. Huh. Um, and And so... We're working with them to try to, to help their sportsmen. I'm also trying to, to help them create a voice um, and a, a working relationship between the sportsmen and Montana FWP. There's some disgruntled uh, hunters and sportsmen there who are really struggling with the fact that they have an overabundance of wolves um, and they're and they're struggling to get a handle on them. They really want to help. They've been begging uh, F4WM to come to Montana for a number of years now, and so we're working to try to accomplish that.
2: Hmm. Um, hmm. Well, you know, at the end of the day, Justin well, Justin, at the end of the day, um, obviously, we both have a profound respect for wolves. But I think it is very important to be clear that wolves do not contribute to wildlife conservation. Uh, the license sales for elk, mule deer, whitetail, uh, I mean, even uh, black bear are what are water funding these wildlife agencies. That's what sportsmen are spending, we're spending our money on. Uh, wolf tag is a drop in the bucket. There just aren't that many people hunting them, trapping them, or even, you know, considering pursuing them. And so you've got this animal that, uh, this species that is a threat to wildlife conservation across the board, because you know it's not making money <laughs> for those state agencies. So it's got to be dealt with. Uh, and you can't you can't have hunters out there harvesting all of these other species uh, that we love to pursue, and then. Uh, just give wolves a pass and not and not manage manage them as well.
3: Correct. That that is definitely uh, the opinion of 4WM and and uh, myself. I I can tell you that uh, wolves are a far different predator than any other predator that we have. I've heard people say, well, why don't you just manage uh, wolves the way that you do lions and bears? And and there's a drastic difference there. Lions and bears reproduce every other year, one or two cubs when they reproduce. Wolves reproduce every single year. Multiple packs are having more than one litter in each pack, and they're reproducing six to seven pups at a time. So the the expansion rates are are drastically different.
2: How are you going to run a pack of wolves up of a tree? You know, they're going to kill those dogs. That's another thing.
3: Uh, Yeah, which has become a real issue. There's some areas of Idaho where our lion populations now are completely out of whack because our houndsmen will not hunt those areas due to the number of hounds that have been killed by the the local pack of wolves.
2: I've seen a a bunch of pictures. It's it's unfortunate what happens to those dogs when uh, they come across a wolf pack. There's no doubt about that. <clears throat> so. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a horrible, horrible
3: situation to have. But the, And a lot of people don't also understand the effects the wolves are having on those uh, other predators as well. A mountain lion that used to kill one white tail a week, every time he kills something, the wolves run him off of it. He's still hungry, so he has to kill again, and he may kill a dozen ungulates before he ever gets to eat anything. And and now we have not only our elk pushed out of the backcountry and down into the farm ground where they're causing havoc and and eating people's crops and running through fences and everything, but now we also have mountain lions that are venturing out of the backcountry where they used to stay to feed on uh, the ungulates that are down in the farm ground and and putting them uh, a whole lot closer to people, which is A negative thing. I mean, as as we all know, lions do and and can sometimes attack people. And and there's uh, been some conflict and and far more sightings of lions around people Mm -hmm. since the wolves have moved in as well. So it's a real dynamic issue.
2: Oh, hell, Jim Shockey was on our show. Oh, I think it was last summer. He was actually attacked by a mountain lion. And you know what his take was on that? Was that he thought that the mountain lion was, it was kind of emaciated, uh, but it wasn't old. And he said, "I truly believe that it was because wolves are killing all of the prey species that the cougar traditionally, you know, fed on, uh, and so that they are basically he was starved. And that's why he attacked Jim and his cameraman. Sure, uh, which uh, just just for for that to happen to someone of his status notoriety, uh, just goes to show you that uh, this is definitely a problem, and uh, public perception." is our number one enemy, I think, going forward, and it has been since reintroduction. Uh, People want to put these predators on a pedestal. Hey, they're cool animals. We both love them. But they're they're not any more valuable than an elk or a a whitetail or a black bear or anything else. So uh, uh, I think if you want to give uh, your Facebook page, I don't know if you guys have an Instagram, also your website, if people want to look you up, um, see what, what you guys have going on.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
3: We we have uh, our our website. Um, we actually are in the process of building a brand new website. We recently launched a online forum where people can go to discuss hunting and and trapping of wolves. And uh, a lot of requests um, that we get are for education on those topics. And so we're hoping to get some of our more experienced hunters and trappers of wolves into that forum to to. Uh, Assist with educating our our membership, um, but we do have a, a new website coming up uh, here within the next month or so. We're hoping to get that launched. It'll be a whole lot more user friendly and and um, a whole lot more use for our members. But that is f the number four w m dot org Foundation for Wildlife Management dot org, um, and uh, our we do have a Facebook page. Uh, same thing Foundation for Life Management. And then also we do have an Instagram. I'm not real savvy when it comes to Instagram, and I'm I'm just kind of exploring that now uh, trying to get a little bit of help. I've got a, uh, some friends who are a little bit more educated on, uh, <clears throat> on uh, that <laughs> platform that are helping me with that. But uh,
4: yeah.
3: anyhow, um, yeah, we'd, we'd appreciate everyone's support. Um, you know, what, one of the things I do know is going on right now, since the, the recent social media blast, uh, our game department's been inundated with, with folks from out of the area who are interested in coming here to hunt or trap wolves. and, and uh, they're, that, they're that's a good thing. They're trying to keep up. It is a good thing. They're they're trying to keep up with getting our our mandatory trapping classes scheduled for everyone. Just encourage everyone to please be patient and and kind with them. They've been very kind to us and and, uh, uh, working with us, and and their efforts are are certainly appreciated.
2: Well, Justin, we certainly appreciate your time, my friend. I hope you have a great rest of the trapping season, and hey, cheers to 18 more wolves.
3: Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you for the support, and uh, thank you for having me.
2: All right, brother. Take care.
3: All right. You too.
0: All right, there he goes, Justin Webb of the Foundation for Wildlife Management. Great stuff there. Everything you need to know regarding wolves, some stuff you probably were already aware of. Other stuff hopefully uh, was eye-opening for you. I know some of it was for me. Uh, That segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and the brand new monolith feeder. What's the monolith? Hey, we're going to tell you about it next. All season, Zach Gates drops in after the break. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor show. have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease we have the solution the system hog trap Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts just 30 minutes south of DFW if you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs. You need to give them a call. Hunts are two fifty dollars a hunter for a half-day hunt. That includes 15 birds, and you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is one fifty a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 to book your hunt today. Hey, y'all, it's Jeff
2: Foxworthy, and thanks for listening to my buddy, Cable Smith, on the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
0: 24 hours, man, they run that rig, they take that crystal meth, just like it's oxygen. Then the tankers come in and haul the oil away, looks like someone down in Houston's getting paid today, alright. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer, and our Polaris, Oilfield Blues, the name of that one, bringing us back uh, from Comanche Moon. Great tune there. Uh, Thank you guys and gals for being here today as we are about to hear the latest and greatest from All Seasons Feeders. They've got some new stuff coming out here at the beginning of 2019 that I know you're going to want to know about. Um, But before we visit with Zach Gates, this segment is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer. The National Beer of Texas. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the turkey lease this spring. And remember to celebrate responsibly when you knock down that big ground dragger with an ice-cold Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the National Beer of Texas. Well, what do you all say we head down to San Antonio and check in with our good buddy Zach Gates of All Seasons Feeders, Blinds, Backyard Barbecue Pits. I mean, they do it all. But All Seasons, um, Zach's dad actually started this company back In the 80s, and so they've been doing it longer than anyone else uh, originating in South Texas. Out of necessity, you know, you don't live close to your property. How do you continue to provide feed to the deer? Well, uh, Zach's dad created the first all-seasons feeder back in the day, and Zach has been the mastermind behind all the new models and uh, designs here over the last 10 years or so, maybe even longer. I know Zach's relatively young. So anyway, joining us now, it's my pleasure to welcome Zach Gates back to the show.
2: Yes, sir. How you doing, Cable? I cannot complain. Can't complain, man. I know you guys just got back from skiing. Uh, where were you, Utah?
1: Yeah, went up to uh, uh, Park City and did a little skiing with the family.
2: <laughs> right on kind. in your
1: Too cold. Glad to get home, though.
2: Oh, For yeah. For
1: sure. <laughs> it's funny you go up there and they're like, you're not from around here huh nope texas yeah i thought so <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. It's like we
1: we got we got uh you know five six layers of clothes on and everybody up there has just you know a light jacket <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> like, how we roll yeah
1: too cold for our blood
2: they can pick us yeah. out that's for sure
1: yeah absolutely. so
2: how was your hunting season
1: uh it was good it was pretty good i you know i had uh quite a few deer that been watching on camera all year, and uh, we actually, there was a buck, so there was one buck I was hunting two years ago, Mm -hmm. three years ago, I'm sorry, and I thought he was five at the time, and kind of put him at, I was really thinking he was in the 180s, -hmm. and uh, he was back in the corner of our pasture that we really never hunt, you know, and I just stuck a feeder back there and a a camera, uh, this was three years ago, and, and got some pictures of him, started kind of hunting him, the end of the season came, I didn't get him. He just completely moved the other side of the ranch. Mm-hmm. Last year, saw him. He actually had dropped quite a bit. This year, we had a, uh, a hunter come out and he saw him and shot him. He was 239.
2: Oh, my God.
1: I know. I know. I so mean, he geez. dropped
2: and then he put it back on. I wonder why. Oh, yeah, he
1: probably went down to 175 last year. Huh. And we had a lot of deer do that. And I, you know, I was trying to
2: Did talk I have to. A I couple. didn't have a drought, though.
1: No, well... A little dry? It was a little dry, but uh, uh, I talked to another guy on a ranch, kind of in the same area, and he was like, man, I think they just ate a bunch of the, the uh, mesquite beans, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't really know the whole nutritional facts of mesquite beans, but he said, yeah, a lot of our deer, you know, they, they ate mesquite beans, and kind of like I said, it was dry, and that's what they were eating. And they, uh, you know, we had a lot of deer that actually dropped, mm-hmm. Uh you know, in, in in size. So I don't know. I don't, really don't know. But he boy did he blow up this year. <laughs> My goodness.
2: So how old yeah. was he then? Uh seven and a half?
1: Yeah, he was seven and a half. Wow. Absolutely amazing deer. Beautiful oh, deer.
2: Jeez. That's so, incredible.
1: Yeah. 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 So I, I I I decided last year I last year I decided, man, I'm just gonna I'm gonna let him go, you know, and, and this year I, I I did see him a couple times, but to be honest with you I just I really You know, with a six-month-old, I didn't get to hunt a whole bunch. I went down there, I just did not get to hunt a whole bunch. Yeah. You know, so uh, we
2: we let someone else shoot him. I hear that. Um, I hear that.
1: But, yeah. How about your hunting season? Do you have a good season?
2: Oh, it was great. It was great. You know, I was telling you off the air, uh, took Henry on his first deer hunt, and we shot a buck, a nine-point, at the um, stand and fill up there in my place around Wichita Falls. And then wouldn't you know it uh the twins were wearing me out dad you took henry you took henry deer hunting when do we get to go to deer camp you know you know they wanted to go hunting four, four years old and uh so i was tickled you know i was thrilled but also a little nervous like this this could go bad <laughs> i don't know if we'll even see a deer uh but we all got up in the big chingone the wife went to aaron went and all five of us were up there and we we had i mean we had plenty of room I just can't believe any deer walked out, though. With, uh, it was like a, a herd of elephants in there.
4: Uh, <laughs> but we were comfortable.
2: And, and somehow, you know, some does came out, and we ended up getting one. Um, so wonderful, wonderful experience. And the Yeah, uh, it's something they'll never forget. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, the, for sure. You know, and and I shot a, a, quite a few other great trophies. Those two will be the, the ones that stick with me more so than the others, though. So that's for sure. Yeah. So and that's awesome. That's the future, right?
1: Yep, that's right. That's right. As soon as my daughter can can get out and then she'll be she'll be out there in the pasture with me for sure. No doubt. So no doubt. Yep.
2: Um well let's talk about some stuff that you guys have going on, some new stuff in the works, things that I'm uh pretty excited about. And I wanna start with the uh, cottonseed feeder, a uh, new design. Well, from you, you're the tink- you're the tinkerer. You're always looking to make yeah. things better. Cottonseed has a lot of protein in it. People not might not realize that, but you always see, especially if you go out like west towards the Panhandle, you see mule deer, you know, in these cotton fields all the time. What are they eating? Well, they're eating cottonseed. Whitetails do the same thing, and that's because it's very high in protein. Uh, what percentage is uh of, of protein is in is in the cottonseed?
1: Well, it can actually range. You know, there's some studies out there but anywhere from between 17 up to 25 percent protein wow so okay. pretty high yeah. you know and, and and your protein uh pellets that you buy are you know from, from 50 you can get them from 16 up to 20 hmm. um so it's you know quite a bit quite a bit difference there
2: yeah so. yeah so obviously Absolutely. very good for the deer on that uh, front also has a lot of oils fat uh that's, that's good form in addition to the exactly. protein. So tell us about the uh, the new cottonseed feeder.
1: So about three years ago, we actually released a cottonseed feeder. Uh-huh. And all we did is we just took our hay feeder, put some 4x4 panel in there, and kind of launched it out to the public. Didn't really do anything. Hmm. Um, you know, and at that point, I kind of just put a cap in my mind, you know, as this is not, there's not a demand out here for this. Um, and for years, people have been taking, you know, fencing, wrapping it in in a in a circle, uh with a T post and filling, you know, say a five or eight foot fence in a circular um structure just filled with cottonseed. And and that's you know, the the feeders that have been I mean I don't know how long they've been out, you know, for a long time. It's what people just making their own cottonseed feeders. Hmm.
2: Um and just well, to give people a visual, you you're talking you're actually the cotton itself is still part of this equation. I mean, it's not actually like de-seeded. I don't want people to think you're just dumping a big bag of just seed in these feeders. That's not how it works.
1: Yeah, so they're still they're still you know a, a not a decent, but there's a, there's there's some burrs you know cotton mm-hmm. a little bit of cotton still on the seed, so it's still a fluffy you know still a fluffy seed mm-hmm. you know so it's it, it 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 will not flow through a protein feeder. It will not really flow through through any kind of feeder, you know, so, you know, trying to design a a feeder that will protect the, uh, the seed from rain and, and the elements, you know, not that cotton seed needs to be protected, but, uh, it can still mildew, you know, Mm -hmm. if it gets wet. So that's what your traditional, uh, we'll call them circular, uh, you know, fence panel feeders, uh, you know that's still exposed to the elements and it still will get rain and and it can mildew you know and, yeah. and get moldy so i wanted to last year started having some interest some people calling asking hey i got a cotton seat feeder, and uh you know we just got to a point where we have we've had so many people calling in asking for this item that uh, kind of like how we usually do you know we just listen to our customers and if the demand there that's what they want then then we'll design it and come out with it and test it and launch it to the public you know um so came out with you know started to design this cottonseed feeder and wanted to wanted to design something that was not so much just for whitetail but for sheep goats exotics whitetail and you know so you've seen it on our website check it out but uh i guess to kind of explain the 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 design to the, the customers is is it's uh you know, it's, it, it looks like your traditional kind of protein feeder, but instead of there being a, a feed tube or spout at the bottom of it, it just comes to, to a, a a V. You know, it's like an upside-down cone with slots cut in it to where the, the cotton seed's sitting there, you know, from 33 up to 52 inches for, you know, all type of species to actually walk up to it and eat out of it, and it's protected from the elements as well.
4: Um, yeah.
1: And so we, we sat down with... Um, uh, Uh, a company that's bagging cotton seed and you know they said uh we just kind of talked with them and brainstormed a little bit and and went to the drawing board and came up with this design and tested it for a year and we just launched it three months ago and and uh been pretty impressive on 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 you know what it's been doing i'm i'm impressed on on uh the amount of customers that are are really switching over from their traditional fence cottonseed feeder to to this to this feeder, you know. Absolutely. So,
2: and one uh, you know, one perk is that also, I think hogs will eat cottonseed, but it's not like uh, not like corn. They I mean. Uh, yeah.
1: So so what we actually found in our testing is is with you know the game cameras that we put up, the pigs they only stay there for a few minutes and eat and. From what I heard, you know, there's not a whole bunch of study on feeding cottonseed, and that's what I see it. The industry kind of working that way. I've talked to some some people like like the like the company that's bagging the cottonseed. You know, they're bringing on on some somebody to start doing some research on it. But uh, you know, as far as the pigs, they they stay there for a few minutes, and what I've heard is that they actually, you know, it hurts their stomach, and then they they leave.
2: Good. So they do not. They do not.
1: They do not sit there like protein or corn. it will just
2: eat Gorge yeah.
1: it's gone. You know exactly. Yeah. So finally, uh, something
2: that those sons of bitches just don't inhale.
1: Yes. That's yes. Wonderful. Finally. So we've actually we've we've set up eight cottonseed feeders on on our place, and uh, we offer it in a 500. We're about to launch a thousand pounder. I know that seems crazy. Whenever you're talking about a thousand pound protein feeder what's the difference you know mm-hmm. you're they're still they're still going through um not they don't go through it as quick as the the protein pellets you know that we've that we've noticed uh but still if if a thousand pounder for us is lasting a week at one location you know it's lasting about two weeks at at uh two to maybe three at you know at that same location
0: with the cotton so paint, it, right yeah right
1: yeah okay. uh, but yeah so the thousand pounder will be launching soon and you know, similar design.
2: Perfect. So, also want to talk about the monolith, and I've seen the prototypes of this. Uh, Zach, the design is like nothing else I've seen uh, on a feeder, but I think it has all of the perks and nuances that your customers have been asking for. You know, because I I told you off there. I was like, how can you how can you improve on the six hundred pound standing fill? It's like the best feeder of all time. And you're like, well, you know, take a look at this and by God it it looks like it's even better.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's something that um that we'll be launching here shortly, but yeah, so this has been a design in the making probably for the last two years. Um and I wish I could tell you how many times I've literally thrown feeders away, uh until we came up with, with this design here. Um you know, and it's it's been fun getting getting to this this new design but what what we do is you know we start i guess when we launched the the 600 Stanville in 2013 it was January 2013 you know basically from that point on we've been consistently improving what the 600 you know up to what the 600 Stanville is today mm-hmm. you know we added corn shields uh, new ways of manufacturing it made it stronger easier to to move for the customer, you know, just whatever I would read and what we would get call-ins, you know, say it was complaints or recommendations, we take those down, we write them down, and when we start to do a redesign, those are things that we start to implement, you know, it's kind of like, what are our top five big issues or top two big issues with this item when we're designing it, and that's what we're focused on, you know, mm-hmm. what is what are our customers saying, what do we need to change and improve on, and that's what we focus on and i guess up to a point i felt that we could only improve the current 600 Stanfield to um you know to the best that it is without completely doing a a a redesign you know a complete overhaul and that's what i'm calling the 600 monolith is it's a it's a complete redesign complete overhaul mm-hmm. um so all the issues that customers would have uh you know, kind of like a few customers. Well, more than a few, but you know, they say, well, the base. I don't. They, I don't like a standing fill because it blocks too much of my viewing area. You know, mm-hmm. and so this monolith. What we did is, it's a feeder on a mono stand. You know, it's just it. You, you can see to the back side of it. You know, just because it's on a mono stand. And I know we don't have it on our website yet, but. uh That's
2: okay. I'm going to to post pictures of it on my Instagram. Okay, perfect, (laughs) perfect. There
1: you go. That was one of the issues that we focused on. Another one was customers would say, well, I'd like to get down to my knees to be able to get to the control unit. So what do we do? We move the control unit up to the side of the feeder. So now you can stand up, walk up to the feeder, and easily open the side door hatch, change your time, check your time, test the feeder, whatever you want to do, close it, and walk off. You know, Um, the solar panel is actually exposed... Better to the sun now as well, um, so you'll get you'll get more hours of, of sunlight. Yeah. Um, also, another thing was the. Uh,
2: um, it's still on like sleds. I mean, don't I want people to think yeah. that it's just oh, like yes, a one. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, It has hooks to it where you can hook up to it and drag yeah. it. Still. Uh, good thing about it is it's it's 52 inches off the ground. Yeah. So that's we lowered it a lot. You know, <laughs> being the current ones that at, at uh, right at 68 now. So. This is a 600 pounder at 52 inches. Slow, easy, easier to fill. You know, a lot of just a lot of big improvements. Now it comes with, it has the eliminator on it. Uh, Our last, you know, our current 600 stand and fill model does not have the eliminator. Um, And by no means are we trying to completely replace the 600. It is, it's our best seller and been the best seller since we launched it. You know, this is just a upgraded version you know, yeah. with added benefits. Yeah. And if it if it outsells a 600 fill next year, then we'll take a look at it and go, okay, hey, this is the only one we're going to offer, um, you know, and we're going to discontinue the old one maybe in five years, maybe 10 years, maybe one year. You know, it's basically, we'll go strictly off what our customers tell us. You know, yeah. and that's we base yeah. that on, on the sales and what what everybody wants. And this is, you know, I wanted to launch this feeder with still keeping the 600 stand and fill, some people want more in a feeder, and that's what I feel this one offers.
2: Yeah. All right, so that's what's going on with the monolith. I can't imagine that it's not going to be in high demand. I think you said the price tag on it is 699 for the 600.
1: Monolith, yeah, it's 699 Which is a
2: stand and fill, don't get me wrong.
1: <laughs> no, it is, yeah, yeah. and we, we wanted to give it a completely different name just yeah. to di- differentiate it that much, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so yeah it's gonna be a six nine nine retail item while the you know traditional uh six hundred stand fills at six forty nine right so it is a little bit more uh but to me personally it's you
2: you're know, getting more.
1: worth the fifty dollars exactly
2: yeah. exactly yeah.
1: so yeah but uh no it's a it's a great feeder we're excited about it and uh you know i i it seems like every time me and you talk you always kind of get the first the 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 first news about our new items coming out that we haven't launched yet.
2: Well, you know, <laughs> which is good. It's good. It's, it's, good. it's just one of those perks. I think I might get my hands on one of these monoliths uh, pretty early as well, so I'm excited about that. So, yep. We'll, we'll have Saturday. I'll bring
1: one to you Saturday.
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, I'm excited about the the monolith. Well, so one other thing that I wanted to hit on as as we wrap things up is the feed think timer. Now, I'm a big fan of the FeedSync think remote, uh, especially on my place in Texas where you know you, you hit that you control it with your you know your app on your uh, on your phone there and boom you've got hogs that, i mean for me it's like it's the hog um feed call i mean they come running you want to shoot a hog you want to take a friend that's ever been hunting great opportunity here hit, hit that button and the hogs come running um so yeah. what is the, actually what is the feed sync timer
1: all right so the feed sync timer is um it's The next big thing to the feed sync remote Mm -hmm. i mean what you know so we actually launched the feed sync remote and our plan behind that was just to get customers prepared for the feed sync timer um if we would have came out with the feed sync timer first we were a little worried that it was it was too much you know there's just it's too much information too much new new stuff to kind of download um so we came out with the feed sync remote And launched it, you know. I guess that was in 2017, and then uh, just a few months ago, launched the the feed sync timer. You know, so um, what this does is there's actually no user interface at all. Um, It's you know kind of like the feed sync remote that you have. It's like a uh, (laughs) really it's the exact size of a a can of Copenhagen. Uh, it's kind of a funny story itself we can get into later, but, um, you know, it looks like a can of Copenhagen, the size of it, with the antenna sticking out, sticking out of it, um, and, and that's it. That installs in your feeder. Uh, a lot less wires, you know, whenever you start adding accessories into feeders, um, whether it's a remote or, or anything else, you start having a lot of wires stacked on top of each other on your battery, you know. So we wanted uh, not only a simple unit to install, but uh, a unit that did everything that you couldn't do before. So this unit, you know, it's your timer, it's your, it's your diagnostic system, it's your feeder remote. Um, you simply.
2: So you still hook it up, obviously with your, with your feed remote.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you still, but it's a completely, there's an app just for us, Uh for this. So, um, you can set your time, you can set your feeder off, you can, um, it it, on the home page it actually has your solar panel your motor your battery shows your battery voltage it shows your if your solar panel is good and charging Um, and then it shows if your motor's good it has a check mark if it's bad something's jammed then it has a you know kind of like an alert symbol you click on it and it tells you what could possibly be wrong with it so it tells you everything on your home screen you can pull up i love it because this winter it's cold and wet outside, I just pull up in the truck, hook up to the feeder and make sure everything's working, test it, check the battery voltage, uh, you know, the solar panel will say good or bad. If it is dark outside, the solar panel will say, you know, uh-huh. it's reading current volts. So yeah. if it's dark outside, it will show an alert system. But, you know, it's a, if it's a, just even overcast day, it'll still show good. But uh, no, this thing's it's awesome. Um, it's it's doing really well.
2: And it's so what does that for retail it? for?
1: Uh, it's a 139. One thirty nine nine nine. Okay. So, yeah. So every everything you need. And
2: it tells uh, you every, everything right there on your phone. So.
1: Yeah, and huh? it,
2: it's it's
1: quite a few uh, other details that you know I, would probably bore you, but one one big one is you can use any twelve volt solar panel. You can use a twelve volt ten watt twenty watt solar panel. This thing actually has a a battery voltage regulator. So if you hook a twenty watt solar panel up to it. It will allow it to charge your battery, but then it'll shut off, so it will not overcharge your battery. So whenever it hits 13 volts, it shuts off the charging, and then as soon as it falls below 13 volts, it charges it back up. Hmm. So it uh, it maintains you know a constant battery voltage, and
2: uh, man, it's it's great. And it's fueled by Copenhagen, you said? <laughs> no. <laughs> no,
1: no. So we were when we were designing it, we were you know kind of like what what should we have this thing look like and and uh, there's a can of Copenhagen sitting there and I was like, man, it's kind of a attractive size right there. You know, it's fit great in pretty much any control unit out there. Can we make all everything fit in there? And uh the company that we're working with on, on designing it. Yeah, we could definitely probably do that. And that'll be a good size, you know? So yeah. Started to uh, uh, kind of design it around that size and the housing and everything worked. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's, cool. where, that's where that size come
2: from. That's awesome. So, awesome.
1: But, uh, Yeah, no, it's, it's been a really good unit. Uh, we've been testing it for quite a while and it's, it's, it's solid. Really excited about it.
4: So.
2: Well, cool stuff, Zach. I always enjoy hearing the latest and greatest as, uh, like I said, you're the tinkerer of all tinkerers when it comes to, uh, feeders, blinds, and everything that goes into that. All that good stuff that that us, uh, us deer hunters depend on. So certainly appreciate it, man.
1: No, oh, glad I could, uh, could share it with you first, like always.
0: Yes, indeed. There he goes, our good buddy Zach Gates of All Seasons Feeders. And of course, you can find everything, uh, including the cottonseed feeder and the feed sink timer, uh, right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. I believe the monolith is still a couple weeks out uh, as far as being available on the website. Uh, that segment of the show was proudly. Brought to you by Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue Where you can stop in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner And enjoy Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue Uh, Just looking at the clock here Unfortunately, we've gone a little over today Gotta go, gotta get out of here Thanks to Zach, as well as our other guest Justin Webb of the Foundation for Wildlife Management We will do it again, same time, same place Brand new show next week As always, thanks to all of our sponsors For making this show possible Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. And you got.